Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Russia and Ukraine continue their fourth round of talks. Russia explains why they targeted a military base near the Polish border. 35 people were killed when dozens of Russian cruise missiles pounded a base in western Ukraine. Our NTD correspondent is on the ground in Ukraine with an update of the aftermath. The U.S. and China hold the first high-level in-person talks on Ukraine. What did they say and how is the Biden administration reacting to reports that Beijing is willing to help the Russian military? Calls to suspend taxes on gas are picking up across the country. Lawmakers representing those paying the highest prices at the pump have brought a bill to the floor and they want a vote now. Police in the northeastern U.S. are asking for help to catch a suspected serial killer. The murderer is targeting homeless people. He's already shot five and killed two. Russian and Ukrainian delegates began their fourth round of talks remotely today and will resume tomorrow. They say they made significant progress over the weekend. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Russian and Ukrainian delegates paused their fourth round of talks on Monday and plan to resume on Tuesday. This is the first time they met virtually. The video meeting of delegations has already started today. It's ongoing. Everybody is waiting for news coming this evening. We will definitely report in the evening. The delegates will continue to discuss plans for a ceasefire. They said over the weekend that there has been progress in the talks. At the negotiations, the Russian Federation is not issuing ultimatums, but is carefully listening to our proposals. I think that we will achieve some results literally in a matter of days. A Russian delegate told Russian state media that he believes the progress could continue in the coming days and result in an agreement ready to be signed. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says he's hoping to meet Russian President Vladimir Putin. Our delegation has a clear task to do everything to arrange the meeting of the presidents. It's a meeting I'm sure people are waiting for. It's clear that it's a difficult story, difficult path, but we need this path. The talks are happening while Russian airstrikes continue. Ukrainian authorities say 35 people were killed on Sunday when Russia bombed a Ukrainian military base 12 miles from the Polish border. Russia on Monday explained why they targeted the base. At these facilities, the Kyiv regime created a center for the combat training and coordination of foreign mercenaries before sending them to the areas of military operations against Russian forces. The facilities also store foreign weapons and military equipment. Russia says the attack killed 184 mercenaries at the base. Russia says they are aware of all the locations of the foreign mercenaries in Ukraine and will go after them. I want to repeat. There will be no mercy for the mercenaries wherever they may be in the territory of Ukraine. On Sunday, award-winning American journalist Brent Renault was shot and killed while reporting in a town in the Kyiv area. He was working on a project for Time Studios focusing on the global refugee crisis. One of his colleagues was wounded in the attack. It was a deliberate attack by Russian troops. They knew what they were doing. But it seems like not everyone in the West knows what they are doing. In response, the mayor of the town announced that journalists would be denied access to the city. Allison Lee, NTD News. 35 people were killed when Russian cruise missiles pounded a military facility in western Ukraine. 
That's according to Ukrainian officials. NTD's Dan Skorbak and Epic Times' Ivan Penchikov spoke to military personnel and residents in the area of the attack. Here's what they found out. Today we are less than 10 miles from the training facility that was bombed by the Russian forces. The latest official figures are that 35 men were killed and 134 others were wounded in the attack. Uh, uh, this, is, this facility uh, was used by uh, the Ukrainian military to train foreign volunteers for the war who've come from different countries. We also talked to a few military personnel who were there on the ground when the attacks hit. They, when, they said when they ran out of the barracks uh, after the first hit, uh, all the debris started hitting them, f uh, flying from the air uh, and falling onto them. Uh, they came over in a car that was um, very beat up, but they said uh, everything else was damaged in, in much, much, uh, on a much greater scale. Uh, yes, and the, the men who we spoke to, who, who trained at the facility, um, told us that after the attack, uh, in the aftermath, uh, they were um, rounded up and told that those, who, those volunteers who want to stay and continue on can stay, and th those who want to go can go. Uh, he said that many wanted to stay uh, and, and many wanted to go. He doesn't have an exact number. He was one of those who decided to, to go back uh, to the country where he came from. Uh, when he asked him why uh, he believes uh, they got hit, he, he said that uh, people were coming from many different countries, from North America, South America, from Europe, and uh, they were told not to use their phones, not to use social media, but a lot of people still used their phones, uh, still took pictures, still, still posted those pictures on social media. So he said that their own ignorance uh, led to their own peril. And while some volunteers have decided to go back home, others are risking their lives to deliver humanitarian aid. I met Andriy near the Ukrainian border. He came from England, and he is delivering goods to eastern Ukraine. We uh, want to tell uh, all the world, uh, please help us, because Russians is very dangerous. This lady just took her daughter and her husband's parents to Poland and now she's headed back to Ukraine. In Ukraine? In Ukraine, I am a doctor at pharmaceutical, uh, but now I'm a volunteer. I took uh, medicine and uh, from Poland and from Belgium, and I took, uh, I took to Ukraine. And, back home, and Steve I've been Parker told that I have at least is also from England, uh, uh, and he brought 16 large vehicles and 15 tons of aid. He explained why so many people wanted to support the cause. And the people in the UK are very generous people. They're very heartwarming people. They don't like seeing suffering across any, any, any part of the world. And this has brought tears to the people that I live with, my friends, my friends' families, and so on. These people want to make this war stop. These people can't stand what's happening. So they're giving as much aid as they can to stop the people who are suffering, suffering any more than they have to. Parker said he's aware of the risk but he doesn't think about it. He just focuses on getting the help to those in need. Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ukraine. Both a pregnant woman and her unborn baby died after Russian forces bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol, Ukraine. It's among the most brutal moments so far in the war that's been going on already for 19 days. Britain's health secretary called the bombing of the maternity hospital a war crime and warned that Putin will be held responsible.
This report from NTD's Joy Duguid does contain images that some people may find distressing. A pregnant woman and her baby have died in the besieged city of Mariupol after Russian forces bombed the maternity ward where she was meant to give birth. In video and photos shot by the Associated Press journalists after Wednesday's attack on the hospital, a woman was seen carried on a stretcher through the rubble of the hospital. She was rushed to another hospital even closer to the front line, where doctors labored to keep her alive. On that day, when the maternity hospital was hit, three women were brought here. One was in critical condition, in a state of shock, with a crushed pelvis and a detached hip. While we were resuscitating her and treating her for shock, we carried out a cesarean section and took out her lifeless child. More than 30 minutes of resuscitation didn't produce any results. Then, more than 30 minutes of resuscitation of the mother didn't produce results. Both died. British Health Secretary Sajid Javid said these are appalling atrocities Russia is committing on innocent civilians. We know already from the WHO they've got documented evidence of 31 uh, such attacks here throughout Ukraine on health facilities. These are war crimes and Putin will be held responsible. Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary Dominic Raab will visit the International Crime Court on Tuesday to offer the UK's support in gathering and preserving evidence for the investigation and prosecution of war crimes. Joy Duguid, NTD News. As fighting around Ukraine's capital continues, Ukraine and Russia held their fourth round of diplomatic talks, but with no success. And Congress this week is expected to officially revoke Russia's preferred trade status. NTD's Melina Wisecup has the latest. The White House has imposed one sanction after another on Russia, and once again this week, Congress's legislative agenda is dominated by Russia action. This time, they're set to approve President Biden's move to strip Russia of its preferred trade status. It will make it harder for Russia to trade with the West and could impact international supply chains. The economic uncertainty of Russia has global consequences, especially in Europe. Uh, and we know that this impact will not be negligible. It will be a serious impact uh, because of the soaring prices of commodities, uh, because of the consequences of inflation on some raw materials. And lingering in the background, the possibility that Russia could default on its debt for the first time in over a century. Ukraine's president thanks Biden for the sanctions imposed so far, but he wants the U.S. to do more, like cut Russia off from international waters. President Biden remains committed to not sending U.S. troops to fight. He's been very clear and consistent about his uh, that he does not have the intention of sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. Uh, that has not changed. And President Biden could be heading to Europe soon. But Press Secretary Jen Psaki says no official decision has been made on this so far. If Biden does go to Europe, it would be the first time since the war broke out. Vice President Kamala Harris has already visited Europe twice in the past month. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News. And this Wednesday, Ukraine's president will address Congress in a virtual call. Only members of Congress can attend, and the invitation from the Speaker of the House and Majority Leader notes, quote, great respect and admiration for the Ukrainian people. 
What's China's stance on the Russian invasion? In a face-to-face -face meeting today, the U.S. warns Beijing to tread carefully. But reports citing two unnamed U.S. officials claim that China signaled a willingness to help Russia militarily. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Top advisors to President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping met in Rome today, discussing China's support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It was an intense seven-hour session uh, reflecting the gravity of the moment. It's the first high-level U.S.-China meeting since the war broke out, and the two sides talked for seven hours behind closed doors. The White House said a substantial part of it was on Russia and Ukraine, while adding a warning for China. Should they provide military or other assistance uh, that, of course, violates sanctions or, uh, or supports the war effort, uh, that there will be uh, significant consequences. The meeting came amid reports that Russia has asked China for military help and also reports citing unnamed U.S. officials say that Beijing has indeed signaled a willingness to help. The White House was repeatedly pressed on it today, but sounded vague. Well, what we're going to be watching closely, of course, is actions. Both Russia and China have denied the accusations. And before leaving Washington for today's meeting, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. is watching closely to see to what extent Beijing supported Russia. It is a concern of ours, uh, and we have communicated to Beijing that we will not stand by and allow any country uh, to compensate Russia for its losses from the economic sanctions. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. As hundreds of thousands of women and children flee war-torn Ukraine, concerns are growing over how to protect refugees from becoming victims of human trafficking. The U.N. reports that there are many unaccompanied children, and experts warn that the crisis is a breeding ground for exploitation. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. As of Monday, over 2.8 million people have fled Ukraine in the wake of Russia's invasion. That's according to the UN's migration agency. Almost all of those fleeing, women and children, as men have to stay behind to fight the war. The biggest issue that we're concerned about is what's going to happen to these vulnerable people once they cross over to the border. Austin Shamlin and Whitney Miller work for Lantern Rescue, a U.S.-based nonprofit organization that fights human trafficking internationally. Their organization is one of many with growing concerns over how to protect refugees from becoming victims of sexual abuse or human trafficking. You know, we've got women and we've got children coming across the borders into Europe, an already well-known area for human trafficking, sex trafficking um, specifically. And so you're sending these women and children who are a very vulnerable group across the border with no husbands, no brothers, no men of age that can are able to fight because they have to be, you know, accessible in the Ukraine, but you've created this vulnerability for them to go over the border with no protection. Lantern Rescue has been on the ground in Ukraine for the last two weeks. They're helping to ensure refugees have safe passage and a safe place to stay once they resettle in Europe. Shanlin says while all the focus is on the war effort, bad actors will take advantage of the refugee crisis and lack of oversight. You've got NATO forces and the EU and everybody's trying to figure out like what to do with Russia and what to do with the, the, the war effort. And a lot of the internally displaced people and the, um, the refugees that are coming across the border, nobody's really figured out a plan for them. Right? You've got in, in, uh, at the train station in, in Poland, you've got people just holding signs saying, 
we'll take you into our home, we'll drive you here. So it, it is a such a new issue that we haven't seen in this world in you know 70 years, you know something to this magnitude. Last week, a man was arrested in Poland for allegedly raping a 19-year-old girl who had fled Ukraine. Local police said the girl was lured with promises of help and shelter. And German police last week also issued an alert to Ukrainian refugees after noticing suspicious behavior in Berlin. They warned refugees against accepting offers of overnight stays or cash. Shanlin says the best way for viewers to help Ukrainian refugees is to donate to organizations and charities assisting on the ground. But he advises thoroughly vetting organizations before donating because, he says, not all do what they claim. Shanlin will soon be joining his team in the Ukraine. Entity will be following Lantern Rescue's humanitarian efforts as they work to protect vulnerable refugees. Grace Coulter, Entity News. Former President Barack Obama confirmed on Sunday that he tested positive for the CCP virus. Obama tweeted saying that he had a scratchy throat for a couple of days but was otherwise feeling okay. He also called on people to get the COVID-19 vaccine but did not provide other details about his diagnosis. Nationwide cases, deaths and hospitalizations have declined significantly in recent months. But outside of the U.S., specifically in China, where the CCP virus originated, Recently, there has been a significant uptick, causing concern that the situation is even more severe than what the CCP would like the world to know. We'll be watching that closely and be sure to keep you informed. And up next, a suspected serial killer is after homeless people. He's already shot five and killed two. Now the police are asking for help to catch him. And the largest annual seafood trade event in North America is taking place now. Vendors showcase their new and best products. We'll take a closer look in a moment here on NTD News. Police in two cities are looking for a serial killer who seems to be on the hunt for homeless people. They're asking for your help and say they will pay up to $50,000 for tips that lead to arrest and conviction. Police released these pictures of a man believed to have shot five homeless people this month. He killed two of them. Three of the attacks happened in Washington, D.C., and the other two in New York City. In New York City, a man was shot in the forearm. This individual survived. But later, the suspect approached another person lying on the streets, seen here in the green sleeping bag. The suspect made sure the person was sleeping and then shot him in the head. He stood over him and, and shot him in his head. Uh, for no reason at all but being homeless. And so we will catch him. The mayors of New York City and Washington, D.C. released a joint statement saying the work to get this individual off our streets before he hurts or murders another individual is urgent. They're also calling on unsheltered residents to seek shelter. The two cities are now asking residents to report any tips that could potentially lead to the arrest of the suspect. Wisconsin authorities will kill close to 3 million commercially raised chickens to prevent the spread of a bird flu. The highly lethal avian disease was first detected in U.S. poultry in February. Birds on a farm in Wisconsin tested positive for the flu. The flock has some 2.75 million egg-laying chickens. This action will bring the total number of chickens and turkeys killed because of the bird flu to 6.7 million. 
It's the biggest outbreak in the U.S. since 2015. The CDC has said that no human cases have been detected and that the bird flu is not an immediate public health concern. You might be wondering how much higher gas prices will boil to. That's unclear, but multiple states are trying to stifle the surge and suspending gas taxes is on the table. Calls for this tax cut are picking up in California. NTD's Miguel Moreno has the story. Californians are paying the prettiest penny for gas in the country. AAA says people are paying an average of $5.74 per gallon. Some are even charged over $6 per gallon. Trying to suppress the cost, some California lawmakers are proposing a tax cut on gas. It's time to give Californians some much-needed relief. Republican Assemblyman James Gallagher wants the gas tax suspended for six months. That means Californians would pay half a dollar less per gallon. Now, that's not going to bring prices down to reasonable levels by any stretch of the imagination, but it will help. The lawmakers said they would propose the bill on Monday to the Assembly, which could suspend the tax as soon as everyone, including the governor, greenlights the bill. Governor Gavin Newsom has said that he wants a gas tax rebate. Under that plan, checks would be sent to Californians who own cars. In a statement to NTD News, the governor's communications director said the Republicans' proposal can be manipulated to help line the pockets of petro dictators and oil companies who are benefiting from the spike in oil prices across the world. But it's unclear when the rebate checks would be sent to Californians. Making its way up the Georgia legislature is a bill that would suspend the gas tax. It's already passed the House. And Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia is for a one-year suspension on the gas tax. CBS reports that Democratic governors from Colorado, Michigan, and other states have sent a joint letter to Congress in support of suspending a federal 18-cent-per-gallon tax. According to reports, critics of these tax cuts say the savings might not be passed on to the customers and that the suspensions could disrupt funding for city projects. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. The California Assembly has now voted on the Republican bill, but it failed to pass the Democrat Majority Assembly. And Pennsylvania just celebrated the state's Founders' Day at a recreated historic manor house. Visitors traveled back in time to live a day in the 17th century. Let's take a look. Some Pennsylvanians marked this year's Founders' Day at Pensbury Manor. It's a recreated 17th century estate sitting on the banks of the Delaware River. The manor was once home to William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania. Back in 1681, Penn received the land as a grant from Charles II, who was then King of England. So William Penn was a Quaker and was being oppressed in England. When he gets his colony, he establishes it not on Quakerism, but on religious toleration. He was actively pamphleting across Europe for the religiously disassociated so that people who had different religions could come and worship as they chose. Because of that, we could think of him as a multiculturalist. He was bringing different people from different countries to Pennsylvania. Today, the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission runs the property and the house is open to the public. Visitors can take a tour to see live animals in the barn and also visit the gardens. Inside the estate, they can explore William Penn's living quarters, including the kitchen, dining room, and bedrooms. Joyful volunteers also showcase dances from the 1600s to the 1800s. 
This was the major form of entertainment for people back then, whatever their age or social class. Dancing was very popular. Um, either they, you'd have guests over and you would, you would dance with them, or uh, in the, almost every village had some kind of a tavern that had a dance room upstairs. Even during the Revolutionary War, George Washington's officers always organized dances all the time. Colonial craftsmen also demonstrate traditional weaving, quill calligraphy, and blacksmithing. I'm making nails today. And these little nails, each one takes me a few minutes to make. And you can imagine how long it would take to make a barrel of nails. And how many barrels of nails it would take to make a a big plantation like this. So it was very labor intensive back in those days. On top of these, a 17th century joinery stone at Pensbury Manor radiates historical charm. And this would be an example of fine furniture in the 1680s. This is a joint stool. It was made by both the joiners and the turners. The turners had a way that could do the decorative legs. Bringing their families and children along, visitors say it's rewarding to take a look into the past and see the sights and sounds from an earlier era. And in Boston, seafood suppliers and buyers are gathering at the largest annual seafood trade event in North America, where vendors get to showcase their newest and best products. NTD's Chenny Wu brings us there. There's something fishy going on in Boston. Yellowtail snapper, mutton snapper. That's uh, lane snapper sneaking out the head over there. This is a mahi. And uh, you got the swordfish in the back. Oh, wait, it's probably just Seafood Expo North America, North America's largest annual seafood trade event at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Companies showcase their new and best products to buyers and cook up some enticing samples. I'm just making a um, sauteed Norway lobster. We also get a look at some behind-the-scenes technology in the seafood industry, such as the Eagle Product Inspection X-Ray. It's for, for material inspection. If you think about any time that we cut up uh, things using metal blades, right, we, we might have blade shards that get into that. We might find those. Um, and specifically in the fish, right, small bones, things like that, we can see those as well. Last year's event was canceled due to the pandemic, but this year thousands of buyers and suppliers from around the world are attending the three-day exposition to meet, network and do business. The expo says several major companies are expected to attend, including Amazon Fresh, Costco, McDonald's, Red Lobster and Whole Foods. The Seafood Expo began on Sunday and will continue through Tuesday. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Coming up, police in Southern California released footage of an officer-involved shooting. The graphic footage shows a woman lunging at and stabbing one of, an officer with a knife before others open fire on her. And rent control is gaining popularity once again. Many think it's the answer to help people struggling to keep up with rising housing costs, but there are a few reasons why enforcing limits on rent might not be the best solution. That and more after the break. Tom Brady is back. 
After announcing his retirement on February 1st, the 44-year-old changed his mind. He's now set to be Tampa Bay's quarterback for 2022. The move not only changed the landscape of the NFL, it sent Twitter into a frenzy. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Tom Brady realized his place is still in the field instead of in the stands. And this means that when the seven-time Super Bowl winner takes the field next season as a starting quarterback, he'll be the oldest ever to do so at age 45. Brady will also be older than the opposing head coach in eight of the Bucks' 17 games next season. His return instantly signals Tampa Bay as a championship contender, even with the uncertainty of free agents-to-be Rob Gronkowski, O.J. Howard, Ndamukunsa, Carlton Davis, and Leonard Fournette. His return after just 40 days in retirement also sent Twitter into a frenzy with some funny memes as a lifestyle change for the greatest of all time seemed hard to believe. The timing of his announcement, roughly an hour after the NCAA announced selections for the 68 teams in the annual March Madness tournament, stole the show in what is normally known as Selection Sunday. It also upstaged Aaron Rodgers' announcement last week that he was returning to Green Bay, now that the one known as the greatest of all time is coming back. And finally, it significantly devalued the football that was auctioned off Friday for more than half a million dollars as Brady's last touchdown ball, the one he threw to Mike Evans in Tampa's loss to the Rams on January 23rd. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. Officials in San Diego released body cam footage of an officer-involved shooting from earlier this month. A woman was killed after charging at officers with a knife. Viewer discretion is advised for the following graphic footage. Authorities in San Diego released body cam footage on March 11th from multiple officers of a shooting in Little Italy. A woman stabbed one officer in the chest and police then fired upon her during a March 3rd altercation. The law enforcement personnel were in the process of evicting at 47-year-old Yan Lee from her condominium. The altercation began as a sheriff's deputy attempted to serve Lee her eviction paperwork. What is it? Are you Yan Lee? Uh, yes. Okay, here's a notice to evict. She opened the door holding what appeared to be a meat cleaver. The deputy ordered her to drop the knife, but Lee began screaming at him, accusing him of impersonating law enforcement. Put your knife down. Put the knife down. Put, Put the knife down right now. Put the knife down right now. How do I know I'm not an intruder? The two began shouting at each other. Then Lee threw the documents into the hallway and slammed the door. I am not a fake police officer. Drop, drop the knife. Drop the While waiting, officers encountered a maintenance worker who said Lee threatened him with a knife the previous day. Deputies attempted to communicate for about 45 minutes, but Lee would not comply. The team entered her residence and found Lee peering out from a backroom door. More arguing followed until one officer fired beanbags at her. Lee then charged the officers, leading to the shooting. She died on scene after being struck with gunfire. Three San Diego County Sheriff's deputies and one San Diego police officer fired on her. The SDPD canine unit officer who was stabbed was released later that day from the hospital. He was not identified. SDPD homicide are investigating the events surrounding Lee's death. The four officers involved in the shooting have all been temporarily placed on desk duty. Rent control is making headlines again. Rising inflation is pushing rents up, and now more people are calling for rent control. 
though some experts say it's a quick fix that doesn't fully address the problem. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. The issue of rent control has resurfaced as rental prices hit record highs across the country. Rent control is a government program that places a limit on the amount a landlord can raise his monthly rents. Lawmakers across the U.S. are looking to enact these measures in an effort to offset the rise in rental prices. Economist Wayne Weingarten at the Pacific Institute says rent control is a bad idea. There, there's a fundamental problem in the housing markets where there's insufficient supply uh, and you're just worsening that. So what you're doing is trading one bad outcome for another bad outcome. Uh, you're not actually helping anyone. These proposals would generally allow landlords to boost monthly rents by no more than 2 to 10 percent. They're on the legislative agenda in more than a dozen states. Rental prices are up about 18% on average over the past two years. Weingarten suggests looking at the fundamental problems first. First and foremost, we need to get inflation under control because rents aren't driving inflation as much as inflation is driving rents to some extent. And then we need to look at the regulations that are restricting supply. He also says we need new builds and to get more housing units available for people. And focusing on those policies is the best way to address the problem of housing unaffordability. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Coming up, even more stringent lockdown measures in China. Healthy people in quarantine alongside confirmed cases in Shanghai, while tens of thousands of attendees are forced to remain at a beauty expo in Guangzhou. The French government has suspended vaccine passes. We hear from Parisians who welcome the change. That and more here on NTD News. In Shanghai, healthy people have been put under quarantine together with confirmed cases. And a nightmare for about 50,000 people at an expo in China's Guangzhou over just a single positive test. Here's NTD's Tiffany Meyer with China In Focus for more details. Shanghai has been partially shut down since Saturday due to the worsening situation of the pandemic. Schools are closed. Some neighborhoods are under lockdown, with residents told to stay home. All citizens are told not to leave Shanghai unless absolutely necessary. And those who need to leave or return to the city must hold a negative virus test report from within 48 hours. In some companies, when one employee tests positive, all other staff members are asked to quarantine, as they are considered close contacts and could potentially carry the virus too. A video clip from Shanghai has been circulating online recently. It shows employees protesting the draconian measures. They said they were forced to quarantine with people who have tested positive. Among them were children and pregnant women. The man questioned so-called precision prevention measures touted by the government. Uh, 
At the end of the video, the employees shout that they want to be let out. A beauty expo in China turned into a nightmare due to one allegedly positive CCP virus case. That's according to videos posted on social media. About 50,000 people were reportedly stuck at the expo venue on Friday, which is located in the southern city of Guangzhou. The entire event was immediately put under lockdown after a positive case was unexpectedly identified. The organizers put up an emergency notice saying no exit, no entry, and told people to take precautions and social distance. But based on video clips from the event, it appears it was nearly impossible to do so because of the packed crowds. Videos show people started screaming and running toward the exits when they realized what was going on. The crowd was heard chanting, release us, release us. The next day, Guangzhou authorities announced that about 50,000 at the expo had been tested for the virus and that all of those results came back negative. Starting today, people in France are allowed to access bars, restaurants and other venues without a COVID-19 vaccine pass. The controversial law mandating the pass has now been suspended, but it is possible for the government to implement it again anytime. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has this report. The requirement to show a vaccine pass in France has lifted. This pass was necessary to enter bars, restaurants, hospitals, fitness rooms, nightclubs and many other venues. And was also needed for entering workplaces. It was first introduced in July last year, then made stricter in January this year. The move follows the end of mandatory mask wearing inside and outdoors in early February except for on public transport and in hospitals. Parisians in general welcome the lifting of restriction. I feel way more light without masks. We see people's smiles again. This is so much nicer to work without a mask. It's a huge change. It's so good to see people without masks. I feel there are more people in the street. I really like it. It worries me because there are still cases being reported. In fact, uh, my daughter-in-law just got sick yesterday, so I think it's a little too soon. The biggest change will be for the 5 to 6 million French people who refused to get the jab and therefore were cut off from social activities under the vaccine pass law. Even though almost all restrictive measures are now lifted, the habits formed over the last two years take time to disappear. In Paris, many of those passing by still wear masks outdoors. Although the bill has been suspended, it has left its mark on society. Many lawyers denounce the laws surrounding the vaccine pass as discriminative. A policies analyst says emergency laws such as these are likely not to disappear when the crisis is over, but may lead to the normalizations of bills that go against people's rights. According to editorialist Eric Verac, the vaccine pass marked a shift from which it will be hard to go back. It's an overturning moment. We were a society with rule of law. We're now in a society of authorization. This looks like the Chinese social credit system. Good citizens are rewarded and the so-called bad ones are discriminated against. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Semiconductor chips and their battered supply chain seem to be at risk. Neon is a gas that's crucial to semiconductor making, and half of it comes from two companies in Ukraine, two companies that recently halted production. NTD's Colin Fredrickson reports. Ukraine makes half of the world's neon, and its two biggest suppliers are stopping production. 
Neon is essential for semiconductor chip production, and semiconductors are essential for many of the electronics we use, such as cars, phones, and computers. Ingus and Creon make 45% to 54% of the world's neon, according to Reuters calculations. And Ukraine makes 90% of the United States' neon. It's not just everyday neon, it's a specialized kind of gas that we use in semiconductor production. You know, semiconductors require lasers, and for manufacturing that process requires a lot of neon gas. Bakil is the CEO of supply chain risk management firm Resilink. Bakil says there's neon in other places as well, but it takes time to build up the pipeline and volume. The current production is in jeopardy, and we only have a few weeks or several months of supply. Um, so the longer this this uh, fighting gets drawn out, the more in jeopardy our supplies are. Semiconductor stocks have sharply surged very recently when you look at the past five years, but the past five days show a downward trend. The total neon market is somewhere between 50 million and $100 million in revenue per year. Um, so when you think about a semiconductor market where Intel alone does close to 20 billion a quarter, it's a relatively small component cost-wise. Matt Bryson is a senior vice president at Wedbush Securities. Bryson believes chip makers can give other neon suppliers the funds to build their supply and that it won't be a huge deal. Chip manufacturer Infineon, based in Germany, told NTD they currently see only limited supply disruptions in global supply and no impact on our manufacturing capabilities. They say they have several suppliers spread over different countries. Alan Fredrickson, NTD News. Australia and the Netherlands say they have begun joint legal action against Russia at the United Nations Aviation Agency. It's over the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 eight years ago. Emma McCarthy reports. Australia and the Netherlands said on Monday that they had begun joint legal action against Russia at the United Nations Aviation Agency over the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 eight years ago. The Boeing 777 was flying from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur in July 2014 when it was hit over rebel-held eastern Ukraine by what international investigators and prosecutors say was a Russian-made surface-to-air missile. All 200 198 people on board were killed. Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison said taking the matter to the UN's International Civil Aviation Organisation would be a step forward in the fight for victims, a view echoed by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. This is an important step in the fight for truth, justice and accountability for all of the victims of MH17, including the 38 who called Australia home. Russia has to date refused to acknowledge and take responsibility for its clear role in this horrific incident. Australia said it was seeking full reparations from Russia and the suspension of its voting power in the ICAO, which sets standards for civil air travel. The Dutch government said the UN Security Council had also been informed of the step and its foreign minister said in a statement the death of 298 civilians, including 196 Dutch, cannot and should not remain without consequences. There was no immediate comment from Russia's foreign ministry. A verdict in a separate Dutch murder trial involving three Russians and a Ukrainian who remain at large is expected later this year. 
Coming up, the power of the dog and Dune triumphed at the 2022 BAFTA Film Awards. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD. St. Patrick's Day is coming up and Philadelphia celebrated early with a festive parade over the weekend. NTD's Chenny Wu has more. The St. Patrick's Day parade returned to Philadelphia on Sunday after a two-year hiatus, marking its 250th anniversary. The annual parade had been canceled in 2020 and 2021 due to the pandemic. Parade Grand Marshal Michael Bradley told us the theme of this year's parade is faith, family, friendship and heritage. My family came from Ireland, so we're thrilled that they're here. They're on the trolley right here, so everyone is uh, Irish on St. Patrick's Day. According to parade organizers, the first documented St. Patrick's Day celebration parade in Philadelphia was held in 1771, five years before the Declaration of Independence was signed. NTD asked parade-goers what St. Patrick's Day means to them. Here's what they said. Number one, it's very holy, and he's a patron saint of Ireland, and uh, here it's celebrated so big. We're actually really shocked at how big it's celebrated. It is celebrated probably more here than it is in Ireland. <laughs> it means so much to so many people, especially over here, people's Irish heritage. You can see in America what it means to people to, to be Irish, and it's great. it's great to be here. We love the Irish people. We've been to Ireland a few times, and we love it. And my wife is half Irish, so we come to celebrate. And just to have fun. St. Patrick's Day commemorates the death date of St. Patrick, patron saint of Ireland and one of Christianity's most widely known figures. It's celebrated on March 17th in Ireland and by the Irish diaspora worldwide. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The film The Power of the Dog wins top honors at the 2022 BAFTA Film Awards, where sci-fi blockbuster Dune also collected a string of gongs. Pitch Perfect actress Rebel Wilson hosted the ceremony at the Royal Albert Hall. NTD's Neil Woodrow reports. Dark Western, the power of the dog, won the top two honours at the British Academy Film Awards on Sunday, winning Best Film and Director for Jane Campion. Open up the gate, let him out. New Zealand filmmaker Campion wrapped up a successful weekend for her comeback feature film after winning the top honours at the Directors Guild of America Awards in Beverly Hills the day before. Campion couldn't attend the awards, but co-producer of the film, Tanya Sagatian, gave tribute to the director. Jane. We're all standing on your shoulders tonight. You are a visionary whose trail blazed through the last 30 years of cinema with stories about the silenced, the underrepresented, and the misunderstood. Dune, a mammoth adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel, had led nominations with 11 nods, mainly in the creative and technical categories. It won five There's awards. Something in my mind. You need to face your fears. 
Belfast, Kenneth Branagh's semi-autobiographical black-and-white comedy drama set at the onset of Northern Ireland's three decades of conflict, one outstanding British film. We're looking to cleanse the community away, but you wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street. Touch my family and I'll kill you. An absent Will Smith won the leading actor award for playing the father of tennis champions Venus and Serena Williams in King Richard. You walk out there with your head up, you are a champion, and the whole world knows it. While Joanna Scanlon won leading actress for portraying a widow who discovers her late husband's devastating secret in After Love. And Steven Spielberg's West Side Story remake won two awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Ariana DeBose. Neil Woodrow, NTV News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.